we're going to continue with Ephesians chapter 5. And if you remember <clears throat> that in chapter 5 we're looking at the practical, moral, ethical uh, teachings that Paul wants these new Christians, possibly uh, mostly Gentile Christians, to know uh, what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus. And uh, again, it's just an emphasis on the the majority problems that they would be facing uh, as a Christian living in Ephesus or in that part of the world. And we recognize that uh, in many ways we're not faced with a lot of the problems that they had to face, but many of them we do encounter in our culture and in our communities. So there's always a lesson for us. The, the important thing for us to remember when we are working with Scripture is that it was addressed to a particular people. And so what our responsibility is, is to try and figure out what that message was for them, how they were to receive it and understand it. And when we've done that, say, okay, now what does that say to us? How does it apply to us? And so we're doing both of those as we work here. We're going to pick up with uh, verse 3. Um, because he's going to tie back into the previous material there. And, and notice the, the language is very similar because we start out with but fornication and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is fitting among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no silly talk, nor levity, which are not fitting. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that fornication or impure man or one who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And of course, you can see the sexual overtones in this because that was possibly the one of the major problems that uh, these uh, Galatians, uh, uh, Gentiles faced there uh, in Ephesus. And notice the statement which is interesting there, where he says, Be careful of covetousness, that is, an idolater. Uh, and if you remember, we talked about the idols that were everywhere. We saw on the screen when we looked at Ephesus, the idols that lined all of the streets in uh, Ephesus. And uh, each emperor that would come would have his statue erected there, and there was the concept of empire respect and almost worship. And so it was something that was there. And and so when you think in terms of covetousness, uh, you can't let go on the sense of idolatry. And if you're hanging in with idolatry, you can't let get uh, loose from the sense of the sexual implications of idolatry at that particular time. Okay, So again, we find the same tone as we work through there. Now, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We'll notice as we work on down through here, he's really focusing in on the loose language that is associated with the problems that they're dealing with. And so, again, uh, the sense that he's talking about there it would be very relevant to men living in that culture uh, in which they boast 
of their sexual experiences, and others would talk about it. I remember just recently, you folk do too, uh, if you follow basketball, I think it's basketball, this guy was seven foot tall, so he had to be a basketball player, but he was bragging about how many women he'd had sexual encounters with, and it was splashed all over the news everywhere. Um, that's what Paul is talking about, this boasting of your sexual experiences. So don't be caught up with this business of speaking loosely about your experiences or what is going on in the world. So let no one deceive you with empty words. For it is because of these things, empty words, that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Uh, the word associate uh, carries the sense of a close relationship with this kind of lifestyle. You have a similar word used back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's around about verse 13, where Paul has, says that he had written to the Corinthians not to associate with ungodly people and not even to eat with ungodly people uh, because that was the wrong way for Christians to uh, be facing the problems of their culture. Now, both of those words, associate and eat with, are loaded terms. And I've, I've mentioned this to you before, that Greek is a fascinating language. It's far more meaningful, should I say, than English is, in one sense, because the words, or it's a language we call as inflectional, that you can take one word... And you can add something to the beginning of it, and it intensifies the meaning. Or you can add something to the end of it, and it changes the meaning in a sense of whether it is present or future or whatever the case might be. And so one word in Greek actually can cover a lot of thoughts. And so when we come to this sense of not to associate with... We take the normal word mixed together with and we put the word sun up in front of it and we add it to that and it intensifies the sense of not to associate with. Now, you and I can, excuse me, cannot avoid associating with people that are worldly or belong to the world out there because we live in a culture like that. And uh, if you are parents, uh, you have children in school, you have parent-teachers association, or whatever the case might be, or if you've got, if your grandparents, every time your grandson is playing a trumpet somewhere uh, in some concert, guess who gets invited to go there? We go there. Okay, we cannot see him, we cannot hear him, because there are 150 other kids up there blowing trumpets, but we associate with those people. We have something in common with them. You see, but. When Paul uses this word and he puts this sun up in front of it, uh, he's implying more than just associating with. He's, he's talking about a close relationship with these people in which they know uh, that there's something different going on here. We're not marching to the same drumbeat. Now, the word in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 13, is the word sun anamingnumi. Uh, isn't that, doesn't that sound good? Sun ana mingnumi. Sun ana mingnumi. Now the word mingnumi. What English word do you think of is similar to mingle, minglumi? Mingle. 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 See where our English language came from? So then he puts up in front of that sun, 
which is together. Then he adds another one, ana, which is up, and then mingled. And it carries the sense of don't share in them in their lifestyle and don't let them think that you're sharing with them in their lifestyle. One uh, of our brothers said, well, does that mean I cannot play golf with my neighbor anymore? He's not a Christian, but I play golf with him regularly. Well, that passage is not talking about that. As long as when they play golf, his friend knows, hey, we're different. We live by different standards, and we don't do the things that you normally do. Okay, Like after playing golf, go to the pub and get drunk or something like that. We don't do those kind of things. So this is what Paul is saying here when he says, Therefore, that's these people that talk like that, do not associate with them. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Let me just pause there for a moment. In the early lesson, I mentioned that one of the false teachings that circulated at that time, which we call Gnosticism, had a big thing to say on darkness and light. See, And the world is in darkness. In other words, it's lost. But light is needed to enlighten the world so it can be saved. And Gnosticism said, we've got that light. And that light is the special knowledge that we have. And then, of course, Paul will come back and argue, no, it is Jesus who is the light of the world. Was there somebody much earlier than that that said, I am the light of the world? You all know who he he is. Come on, be bold. His name begins with J, and it's not John. Jesus is the light of the world, and he came to bring light into the world. And so Paul, when he writes this, is recalling those images that these folk lived with, that the world is in darkness, but you need light. And so he says here, But you, you are the light uh, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, live as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Bear in mind, the word true is also a loaded term for uh, people living in this world, uh, and it carries a sense of uh, genuine, the real thing. Okay? Um, it's something that is you can just put your trust in because it is the real thing. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> How do we go about trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord? Sorry? Read the Bible. Okay. How else? Getting to know the Savior. Okay. How do you do that? Studying Him. Okay. How do you do that? I'm pushing you, Vicky, aren't I? Yeah, I really am. Okay. Well, it comes back to going to Scripture and finding out what Scripture says about Jesus and getting to know what kind of a person He is. We all have things like that in the business world and in the academic world. We have a piece of paper that we write up that does all the boasting that we have and we send it out to other people, a vita or whatever you want to call it, a curriculum vita. It's something that we write to let people know who we are. So how do we get to know who Jesus is? By his curriculum vita, which is what? The New Testament. 
especially, and the Bible, the Old Testament. But I just wanted you to see that, to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. But let me just go ahead and further add a little more to that. I think we learn what is pleasing to the Lord by going to church on Sunday because we sing together, we pray together, we get excited together, we have a preacher who preaches us a great lesson and challenges us to think, and that's part of the process that we have. And part of the process is the Lord's Supper, because as we partake of the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're taking our minds back to Jesus and what is central in our faith there. So try to learn what is pleasing. Going to Bible study, talking to your friends, whatever the case might be. Uh, at the South 11th and Willis Congregation, where June and I uh, worshipped for the many years that we were there at ACU, uh, every three years they would go through the process of selecting elders. Now that congregation, it was about 300 members, wasn't one of the large congregations. But I would imagine that about 80 to 90% of that congregation were all graduates of Abilene Christian University or on the staff or faculty at Abilene Christian University. So it was just a bunch of Abilene Christian University, or let's say Christians, uh, that have that background in that congregation. <coughs> so we had, yes, all kinds of people uh, that could teach and lead. I mean, we had professors in just about every department you could think of. So whenever we got through to the process of selecting elders, we would ask the congregation to nominate people. That they, and usually one brother was always nominated. But when it got down to the point of uh, finally selecting him, he never was included. And it had to do with that little expression that the elder needs to be an apt teacher, a capable teacher. And this brother... Bless his heart, he knew scripture and he was just the sweetest guy in the world. But it was a catastrophe if you asked him to make announcement, announcements. Because he'd get up there to make the announcements with them all written down and get lost in that process. And then if it's anything personal, he'd just break down in tears uh, up in front of the congregation. Very sensitive person. Well, the congregation just felt, well, this guy is not an apt teacher. And elders need to be apt teachers. But eventually we managed to convince them that he was possibly one of the best teachers that we had in the congregation. Because the best teaching you do is not standing up in front of a Bible class and teaching. The best teaching you do is when you sit down with somebody, just the two of you, and you study together and you teach together. And this man was just exceptional about taking people to coffee or to lunch or whatever the case might be, sitting down and talking with them. So as being an effective teacher, he was. So, and I think this has to do possibly with where we were going right there. I'm not sure just exactly where I was going, but I can find out pretty soon. Uh, we were talking about you are the light, you see, to people. Now, how do you do that? Well, by getting close to people, getting to know people, to be able to talk to people, okay? Uh, let's see. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In the context of what we've been talking about, how would we expose the unfruitful works of darkness if we've been told not to talk about them? Hmm? Okay. By your example. We just don't do that. 
We don't go there. That's not the kind of lifestyle uh, that we live. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, that can be uncomfortable. Uh, just saying, I'm sorry, I, I just can't do that. Um, we have one lady uh, over where I live, sweet lady, but she likes to party. And any time they can get together in our residence area and have a party, they're going to have a party. I do not like parties. In fact, I just do not go to parties. And so she got onto me one time, well, we're missing you. Why aren't you coming? What am I going to tell the sweet lady? I don't like parties. And she said, oh, you don't like people. I said, yeah, I like people, but there are other ways of getting to know people than parties. So guess what? They've quit inviting me to parties. I don't go there. All right. So they know fair doesn't like parties, so don't invite him. So by our experience and how we handle that, we expose, not that going to parties is bad, okay, but we expose what is wrong by not being part of those things that are wrong. So we expose them. We bring them to light. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, that's an interesting little passage here because it comes from Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1 where Isaiah is writing or speaking to Israel and says to Israel, You need to be the light that shines among the Gentiles. You see, And so if you're shining your light among the Gentiles, guess what they're going to see? They're going to see light and not darkness. So, again, now we come down to verse 15. And uh, we get stuck here just a little, okay? If you've got the lessons, uh, um, let me just pick this one. Is this the one, Vicky? That's the okay. one. On page two at the top, look then uh, carefully. And down there at point C, uh, you must look carefully, not as unwise men, Diatuto, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand. And then Kai, which is also, and do not get drunk. Uh, and, you know, I, I had a hard time deciding how to express that to you. <clears throat> because the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at from verse 15 down to verse 21 is an extremely compact passage of Scripture. Uh, one uh, scholar that uh, I like reading, uh, he is a associate professor at the University of St. Andrews. Where is St. Andrews? It's in Scotland, so therefore I like to read uh, his work. But he's a, he's a brilliant scholar and writer. Uh, he, he, will, he uses this term. This is a densely packed passage of Scripture. Now we've got to slowly and carefully unpack that densely. And that's what we're going to do here uh, as we do this. Now, let me give you a little background um, to why I feel it is important that we work through this passage of Scripture the way that we uh, are going to do this morning. And there's a reason for that, is because what this Scripture teaches has been one of the most divisive elements in churches of Christ ever since the very early years of the Civil War, 18 
60 and after that, okay? And as you know, from your study of church history, uh, following the Civil War, uh, the states in the north and the states in the south were almost two different worlds because the states in the north were wealthy. It was an industrialized area. They had all the train lines and trains shifting stuff around in the north. In the south, it was poor because in the south, the, the economy had built on cotton and growing cotton. And all of a sudden, if you take the slaves away from the south, what have you just done? Destroyed the economy, you see? And as bad or whatever the case might be, that was where life was at that particular time. And you know the difference between the north and the south, and you know the stories of how many of the soldiers of the north ravaged the south as a result of that. Well, coming out of that, remember, forgive me if I'm getting a little detailed here, prior to the Civil War, Alexander, Alexander Campbell had been one of the dominant teachers among churches of Christ, however they were called, living in Bethany in West Virginia, which was sort of undecided as whether it was north or south, but that's where Alexander Campbell was. And in the south, the, the dominant preacher, now he was a scholar and also a very uh, wealthy farmer and businessman, but in the south, uh, all they had were people who were farming people. There were not many universities in the south. Major universities were in the north. And so preachers in the north were graduated in the university system, and preachers in the south hadn't been to university and were farmers and leaders, but they were sincere students of Scripture. And when the Civil War was over, churches of Christ faced a real crisis because the churches in the north had and the churches in the south had not, okay? And the churches in the north built big church buildings and they had paid preachers who were well-educated and the churches in the south didn't have church buildings and when they did build their church buildings, they were small and they were wood-type buildings and the preachers weren't educated, and so the first split in churches of Christ was this business of paid preachers and church buildings. Right? As time went by, however, because the churches in the north were wealthy, very soon in their church buildings, guess what they incorporated? Organs and pianos. And in the south, they didn't have the money. But there was a good reason for them to do what they did, is they just said, what we've got to do now is go back to Scripture and see what Scripture says about worship and whether it's appropriate in worship services to God to have an instrument or not. Churches in the north went that way. And so as you look at the church situation among churches of Christ today, you've got predominantly the disciples of Christ who were focused in the north, although we have some disciples of Christ in the south. And the disciples in the Christ were the more educated, wealthy people. And then you had the Christian church, which called themselves the Church of Christ, but then they put in behind it instrumental, right? And they were set there as well. And so they favored the arguments in favor of having an instrument. And the churches in the south said, no, we cannot do that 
because that is not what Scripture teaches. Okay, are you all trucking along with me? Okay. Um, <clears throat> this was one of their favorite passages of Scripture that they went to. There was another one in 1 Corinthians that they would go to 14, and there's another one in, in Colossians, but this was the one that became the hinge to the discussion of uh, whether it was appropriate to have an instrument in worship or not. And the key to that study was the meaning of this word sing. All right? We sing and we make melody with the heart, but we sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the word that is translated as sing in the New Testament is psalo, P-S-A-L-L-O, long O. And so the big debate came about was, what does the word psalo mean? And so the argument by churches in the north was, well, initially it meant to pluck the strings of a harp, okay, or a lyre or something like that. So initially it meant to play a musical instrument by plucking the strings and singing with it. Can you think of somebody who did that very well? David, you see, and so they would go back there. And so the argument was, well, that's what the word originally meant. Well, then the folk in the south came back and said, well, it might have meant that originally, but that's not what it means today. We don't understand it that way, you see. And so they became that tense and back and forwards. Well, did it originally mean this, or how do we understand it today? The question really should have been resolved was, how was it understood when the New Testament was written? Because that's what we're looking at as we look at this passage of Scripture. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Psalo. That's the word from Psalm. P-S-A-L. But it's P-S-A-L-L-O. And the O is a long O. It's got a little dash along the top of it. Psalo. But there's another word that is attached to that, which also creates some issues for us. It's ado. Okay which is also to sing, but it's to sing in the sense of making melody. You see, So we've got psalo and ado used together, so we are to sing, but we are to sing in a way that makes melody in your heart. So the critical issue here was how do we understand this word psalo in the New Testament? <clears throat> are you all with me, or would you rather me just close up and move on? Am I confusing you? I hope not, okay? because that's not my intention, because I struggle with this myself because I'm confused with it a lot. Anyway, um, our uh, scholars, and I'd use that word uh, carefully, um, in Churches of Christ, uh, since the time of Alexander Campbell, uh, even to the present time, have looked at that word very carefully. One of the truly great scholars, uh, some of you know, is Dr. Everett Ferguson, who was for many years uh, a professor at ACU. He just recently retired. And another one was uh, Dr. Jack Lewis uh, from Harding Graduate School. Okay? Among others, uh, J.W. Roberts was another one early on, and I know that excites you that I'm just mentioning these names. But these gentlemen were truly great scholars. And they went back and looked at that word, psalo, 
and determined when it was used in the New Testament era by Christians and others, it meant to sing a cappella. A cappella. What does that mean? Hmm? Yeah, come on. Voice. Without. Without. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, it means as in the chapel. It's a Latin word, basically, a cappella. As, as it was in the cappella, the chapel. Has, how did they sing in the chapel? And so that was sort of the term where it came from, because originally in the large churches like the Roman Catholic Church, guess how they sang? A cappella. They didn't use an instrument. And today, the Greek Orthodox Church, that dates way back to there, still today, sings without an instrument in their worship services. So the conclusion was that this word a cappella, no, the word psalo in the New Testament, okay, as it was used in the New Testament, did not include the sense of playing an instrument. It just meant to sing. Okay? So that's sort of the pivotal point as we work through this. And I think it's correct, the word as it was used. For instance, uh, if you were to ask somebody, uh, well, let me back off from that. In the synagogue, okay, the Jewish synagogue of the first century, okay, uh, they did not sing in the Jewish synagogue with an instrument. And the reason was that in the temple, they sang with an instrument as they sang accompanying the sacrifices. So when you move from the temple, which is involved with sacrifices, to church groups that are not involved with sacrifices and were not allowed to offer sacrifices because sacrifices had to be offered in the temple, the Jews, in order to show the distinction between the temple worship and the synagogue worship, chose to use this term, which meant a cappella, without an instrument. And so in the early synagogues, the best we can determine is that they sang a cappella, partially to distinguish themselves from the temple. We no longer worship at the temple. We worship in the synagogue because Christ, well, they don't know, but the temple has been destroyed. And when, this is another thing we have to realize. When the temple was destroyed, as it repeatedly was destroyed, guess what they could not do? Offer sacrifices. And the Jewish law stipulated that Jews were not per permitted to offer sacrifices other than in Jerusalem in the temple. Okay, you with me on that? Okay. So when the temple's destroyed, what are the Jews going to do? They can't worship in the temple because it's not there. So they worship in the synagogue and they can't offer sacrifices in the synagogue because they have to be offered. So what do they do? They quit offering sacrifices. See, And so to them, the heart of the synagogue worship was the reading of scripture and prayer. And they sang there, but they sang a cappella. Now, as you're sitting there, I'm... I'm trying to see, is your mind going around little circles? I notice some of you, your eyes are rolling here. Are you with me okay? All right. So this is the background behind our study of this block of material from chapter 5, verse 15, down through to verse 21. Uh, if you look at your Bible, you'll most likely note that there is a break 
between verse 20 and verse 21. Like there's a new paragraph beginning there. Okay, That is not how the Greek reads. The Greek, verse 21, follows immediately after the word father without a period. Okay, But our translators have done it this way. It's okay. We can work with it as, as long as we are careful to study it. Now, in discussing this passage with uh, some elders and a couple of preachers uh, fairly recently, not of this congregation, okay, uh, in another congregation, uh, I asked them what they're going to do with this passage here that said, you know, that we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, verse 19, singing, and the word there is psalo, kai ado, uh, and making melody in your heart. Uh, and they said, well, that doesn't apply to the worship service. Okay? That verse 19, 20, and that do not apply to the worship service. They apply to life in general. Okay? So... Uh, <laughs> which is a mixed-up argument, because if the word means psalo, sing a cappella, it's okay to sing a cappella, or you should sing a cappella in life in general, but when you come to worship, guess what? It doesn't apply there, which doesn't make much sense, okay, as you read through that. So, let's work through this passage. It, it is a densely packed passage. I'm going to want to begin here with, well, look, look carefully. Oh, no, back off. There are three major imperatival verbs in this block of material. What is, does an imperative verb implies or imply? You must do this. It's an imperative. And imperative verbs control the context in which they appear, all right? Now, in this block of material, there are three major imperatival verbs. And here's when it gets really exciting. Involved in those three imperatival verbs, there are five imperatival participles, okay? Now, strictly speaking, a participle doesn't have a mood like imperatival, but when a participle is associated with a particular verb, it takes on the mood of the particular verb. So if a participle is associated with an imperatival verb, guess what kind of participle it becomes? Imperative. An imperative participle. Okay, And these imperatival participles are what we call modal participles. Doesn't that excite you? All right. And a modal participle tells you how you should do something. What mode? How do you go about doing this? So if the imperative, okay, is you must sing, and it's got a modal participle attached to it, that participle is explaining how you sing and how you must sing because of the imperative verb. Okay, are we getting deep in the mud here now? Okay. Uh, I think I... I showed you in the outline here which are the imperative verbs or the imperatival verbs. Okay, uh, you've got there, you must... Now, well, we'll work through it as we go through. The, the three imperatival 
participles. Uh, uh, no, yes, the imperatival verbs. The first one is look carefully. What does that imply? It's an imperative. Hmm? Pay attention. Yeah, pay attention. You must look carefully at this. And so, in other words, something important is going to be following up on that. So pay attention now, folk. Look carefully how you live. Not as unwise men, but making the most of the time because the days are evil. So notice what. Look carefully how you live. Not as unwise men, but as people that are going to make the most of the time. I want you to notice as we work through this that three times he's going to use the not but side. You don't do this, but you do this. You don't do this, but you do this. You don't do this, but you do this. It follows all the way through the text. Okay, And those do not, do not, do not are the imperatives. Okay, Or in carefully, look carefully, that's a must how you walk. But as wise men, making the most of the time, not as unwise. All right? Verse 16, making the most of the time. Some English translations used to call it buying up the time or purchasing the time. Uh, because why? Time is precious. And so that's why the RSV, and I think the ESV reads the same, making the most of the time. Time is precious. Look carefully how you live because time is precious. Okay? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but... So you've got, therefore, don't do this, but do this. So, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You've got to do not, but. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And here comes one of the modal participles now. Uh, if you're not going to get drunk with the wine, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. What are you going to do? You're going to be addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And how are you going to do that? By singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Always and for everything give thanks to the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. Being subject, verse 21. So, now let me walk you back through this fascinating passage. I hate to do this to you folk, but I've got to, uh, to teach this passage of Scripture. Notice verse 17. Is therefore... In your Bible. Is, is that what it says in your translation? Therefore. Now, there are a number of ways that you can express the word therefore. And in Greek, the primary word for therefore is un, O-U-N. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, it's therefore be imitators of God. And un, that little part, particle un, which is translated therefore, usually looks back to what's just been said. Okay? Uh, as my one uh, great professor, Neil Lightfoot, said, when you run into the word therefore, stop and see what it's there for. What has he just said? So what he's just said, therefore. So un looks back. But when you come to verse 17, he doesn't use the word un, but he uses another expression, 
which is somewhat unique. It's, it's not found all over the place. And it is in Greek, diatutu. Okay? Uh, diatuto. Tuto is not one of those little dresses that little girls go to dances in, this kind of thing. But it's, it's when you put dia through and tuto together, it comes out therefore. Uh, but this therefore is different. Because this therefore doesn't look back. It's not connected to what was said before. It's now looking forward to something else that is being said. Okay? So what I want you to see is there is a distinction between verse 15 and 16 and verse 17 following, simply implied by this little expression, diatuto. Okay? So be careful right up front. Be careful how you look, not as unwise people, but as wise people. Therefore, now he's introducing another topic here. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, that's an imperative. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18 begins with and. Okay, are you happy with that? Well, the word and in Greek is the little word kai. K-A-I. And that little word kai can be stretched in a number of different ways, depending upon the context and what's being discussed. It could be and, just adding something to it, or it could be translated also, which implies what? Something a little different. Or it could be translated even, which is emphasizing something. See, And so it's difficult to figure out how we go through this to sort it out. So let us just say that because of the, the construction that we have here, following diatuto, the and here should be also, in addition to, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. That's the imperatives. And how do you get filled with the Spirit or show that you're filled with the Spirit? By addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. Where? Where do you make melody to the Lord? In your heart. He didn't say with an instrument. When we sing a cappella, what instrument do you use in your singing? Your heart. I mean, he's quite specific on that. You sing and make melody to the Lord. How? With an instrumental clause following that. This is how you sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. You see, So that doesn't include an instrument there at all. There's no instrument you can find in this passage. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always... And in everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, being subject to one another. Now, that, that's the next lesson that we're going to go to the being subject to one another. So what have I said here today through all of this little exercise that we've looked at there? That we have to agree with Dr. Tom Wright in St. Andrew's University that this is a densely packed piece of literature, paragraph that we're looking at there. It's closely packed, but it is amazingly structured by the Apostle Paul in a way that, if you're careful, you can see what he's saying here, all right, by the fact that there are three imperative participles, 
and the second two are separated from the first by this little expression, diatuto. So if the first participle uh, uh, imperative refers to life in general, be careful how you walk uh, as wise men, uh, but as a, making the most of the time, that's the general statement. But then he gets specific following that onto how you do this. How do we show our wisdom to the world um, in Christ? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the first one. The second one is also, in addition to this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But you must be filled with the Spirit. And how do you show that you're filled with the Spirit? By addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Let me come back at this another way. Verse 15 gives you the general statement. Okay, This is what we're supposed to do. Be careful how you live. Now, he's going to tell us how we do that. By using this word, therefore, that points us forward and not back. Diatuto. And I know that excites you, but that's just the way it is. Diatuto points forward. Therefore, in order to do that, this is how you're supposed to live. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay? Also, in addition to that, here's something else I want to lay on you. Also, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit especially as you're singing. So there are two things that are following up on the diatuto therefore. The one is, and they're both modifying the general statement, that we need to look carefully how we live. Okay? That's the general statement. Then there are two specific statements following that. And the first one is there, don't be foolish. Uh, now, we should stop and look here. Paul looked upon the wisdom of the world as foolish and the wisdom of God as being right. See, that was Paul's mindset as a Jew. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 following, he discusses that. That the wisdom of the world is foolish, but we don't follow the wisdom of the world, we follow the wisdom of God. So he says here, using that same background, therefore don't be foolish following the wisdom of the world. Um, when I talked to the elders and the preachers in this other congregation, I said, why do you want to sing with instruments? And they said, well, the churches out there that are growing radically, these Bible churches and fellowship churches and others, they're singing with an instrument and they're attracting the people. So in other words, if we want to attract the people, what have we got to do? Be like them. That's not what Paul is saying. We don't be like them to attract people. There's a, a, a book that I have. I like it. Uh, it's written by a professor at the University of California. She's retired now. She has a doctorate in music. And she says, uh, the point is, dumbing down won't do it. And her argument is, Dumbing down your singing in church in order to attract people is not going to do it because that's not the way we're supposed to attract people. And it's an interesting book. Anyway, uh, so 
we don't sing with an instrument so that we can attract people. Why do we sing a cappella? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what are we doing? When we sing, I get all excited. When I get old John up there, or uh, is it Brian, the tall guy, opens his mouth real wide and sings real fast. Uh, his wife takes care of our children here, doesn't she? Okay. What's, what's their name? Okay. Uh, when they get up there and sing, especially John on this Sunday, I mean, this guy up there leading the song and he's smiling and everything. Isn't that exciting? I mean, I hear the congregation sing, and I noticed that they had one song there that they hit that note that's way up there. And one of the ladies that sits just behind to the left of me, she hits that note every time. I'm about three octaves below it. I don't get up there at all. But that's exciting. You see, we're addressing one another. We're building one another up. Our singing has two purposes in it. Number one, to praise God. We're worshiping God. And number two, in our worshiping God, we're building each other up and strengthen each other. You see, that's why we sing. Yes, ma'am. Well, it seems to me that just looking at this passage here in chapter five in general, that he's talking about life in general and not specifically placing it in the worship service. So when we get, you know, the drunk and stuff like that, I'm, I'm thinking that's just a general life thing. Why am I not thinking that this instruction about singing is also a general, just a general life thing, and maybe we should apply it in life in general? Yeah. As opposed to why am I, why am I saying this is all of a sudden a worship thing? Yeah, and, and that's a, a very good Point, and that's one of the points that's usually argued, that it's talking all about the same thing. But the very construction that Paul broke it up with diatuto is saying this is not just a continuation of the argument in general. And so I'm going to get specific by using two imperatives. Okay, And here are two different ways uh, that we have here that we do this. And the one is uh, don't be foolish. And the other one is uh, don't get drunk with wine and sing, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the, the, the two keys in understanding this passage are, number one, how we read dia tuto and how we read the kai following it, and especially the way kai is inserted here in the statement that says this is differentiating from what we've just been talking about. So you've got dia tuto is saying, therefore, this is, you know, how do we do this? There are two different ways we do it, see. And so the, the key to that comes down to understanding the impact of the dia tuto and the, the kai uh, also in addition to. In other words, implying something else, not what we've just been talking about. So that's the key to unwrapping that. Now, I know that's a, a tough one. And so <laughs> when I had this discussion with these preachers and the elders, they said to me, well, not all scholars, scholars agree with you. Well, what do you think I felt about that? I said, yeah, they're all wrong. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. You bring me the scholars that support your view 
that say Ephesians chapter 19 is not referring to the worship service, but it's referring to life in general, you bring me the names and the publications of those scholars, and then I will bring you the names and the publications of the scholars who unanimously say that we're talking about a worship service here, not just life in general. Okay? That was a fascinating thing. So I started to do research. I came up with 20 plus scholars that said Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 is talking about the worship service and not life in general based upon some of the terminology that's used in that statement. And what was fascinating was uh, I, I, I knew that if I started to pull Church of Christ scholars, I'm playing with a stacked deck, so I didn't. <clears throat> I turned to scholars far and wide, New Testament scholars in the United States, in England, in Australia, and, Austra and uh, South Africa, and 20 plus of them all agreed that this is talking about the worship service. Well, they came and they brought me, the, the preacher did, he gave me this one little journal. <coughs> it's a Church of Christ journal. It's published in, on the West Coast in California. Okay? And the, this whole thing was sort of uh, written about uh, why it's possible to sing with an instrument. Uh, I looked at the writers of those articles. Several of them had been students of mine at ACU. Um, others, I knew who they were. Uh, I'm going to get myself into trouble here because I'm going to leave the wrong impression with you, okay? If I'm going to have a heart attack, I've told June what to do. If I have a heart attack or something, press that thing on a wall that calls the ambulance. I, I don't want her to take me to the veterinary uh, doctor that we go to. The veterinary doctor we go to is a super veterinarian, trained at one of the best veterinary schools in the United States. And she's a gracious lady. She's a specialist in taking care of cats and dogs and lizards and birds. When I have a heart attack, I ain't going there. Okay? She's a specialist in what she does. Now, this is where I get myself into trouble. A youth minister is not a specialist in biblical interpretation. He's a specialist in what he does. And what is that? Understanding youth and their families and working with them. And they are well trained in that discipline. Okay? We've got how many here? Two or three? And these guys are great. They are well trained in the discipline that they're working in. And so if you want to have questions of what shall we do with a teenager that's having problems at home, guess what? Don't talk to me. I'm not a specialist in that field. Go and talk to our youth ministers. And so when you want to find out what the biblical text says, don't go to a youth minister because that's not his field. He's not trained there. Okay. And I know that sounds harsh on our youth ministers, but it isn't. I'm just saying you go to the doctor who's the specialist for what illness you have. Okay. Um, and so when they bring me this journal article and they say, here it is, these are uh, scholars, and I'm, I'm looking at those guys. I said, I had that one guy in Greek. He failed my Greek class. 
So we had to drop him, and he took another class. And the other one, I looked at him, I said, yeah, I remember him well. He, he graduated with a C grade at ACU, which was telling me what? He really wasn't interested in studying stuff he didn't have to interest in. But in his youth ministry classes, guess what he got? Across the board A's. Right? But he just wasn't interested. So guess what ACU had to do with youth ministers or people that signed up for youth ministry? Exempt them from taking Greek because they just wouldn't learn. They didn't see, why am I studying Greek? I'm going to, you know. So all I'm saying is when they gave me this thing, I said, is that the best evidence that you've got to back your point up? And they said, well, it's pretty good, isn't it? I just left it right there. Okay. What do you think about what I just said today? Did I stir you up and say, you know? Now, let me put it this way. You do not have to agree with me. That's, that's legitimate. You can be wrong if you want to, but that's fine. Okay. I know you knew my dad. Yes. And he was in the time that there was a great difference. The Christians said that that was way, and the others did. And they, they crashed, went away. And it was what a horrible time for the people that wanted. Yeah. Uh, I see another thing here that you have to say. Mike says uh, speaking to one another, and that's one of the ways that you want to. I sing, you know. And I sing words that let people know what is God wants us to do. You can't do that with an instrument. It's difficult. You're correct on this. But that's why he adds there, not only speaking, uh, you're hit with the second word, which is making melody, which is ado. Yeah, uh, uh, she's one of those ladies that hits those top notes where it's in a world that I don't belong, okay? So she makes melody. Uh, I do not make melody when I'm singing, but I do speak, okay? Let me come back. Now, just touching her again. When I came to the United States in 1965 for the first time, guess who met me at Lovefield Airport? And took them to the house. And took me to their house. And I woke up in the morning and... I could smell coffee. They had a coffee percolator that had already turned itself on and was making coffee. I had arrived in a new world, okay, (laughs) due to her dad. And he didn't want me to go to ACU. No, he wanted me to go to Preston Road School of Preaching, which he had started up there, uh, a great man. He came to South Africa, and I got the opportunity just prior to that to drive him around and show him some of the mission work that they had been uh, involved in. And uh, I didn't have a camera, so when I left, he gave me $100 and said, go and buy a camera. And so <laughs> that was her dad, a great guy. My point is, you, you're making a valid point there, though, is that, yes, when the word salo implies the sense of speaking, but when you're speaking, you're supposed to be doing it from the heart, you know, Making melody in the heart. In other words, it's, it's, it's heart music that you're singing. And that's what the word ado means. And if you listen to us singing, not me exactly, but out there, it is 
It is beautiful. Sometimes I have to cry. Somebody had their hand up over here. Yes, sir. talk about how you think of those people that wrote the articles when they were young and in classes. Um, you know, we've all been, a lot of us been to college and uh, and there's different maturity levels. That, I mean, I think back, I went to ICU, I was an ICU grad, and so I think back of some of the activities of the people I went to college with and how they acted there and how they are now, that that you can mature and change and, and sure. study and become a different person than you were back then. But so I, I just kind of put that little note because I yeah. think back. I think, yeah, and and, 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 and you're right. In 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 the church life, if we're looking for somebody to mature our teenagers, go to our youth ministers. That's their speciality. Let me back off and give you a little history behind that. The first youth ministry program in Churches of Christ was started in about 1980 at Abilene Christian University when I hired Dr. David Lewis from Highland Church to come over there and start it. We had five youth ministry students that came in there at that particular time. And very soon afterwards, they decided this is not right. We shouldn't call this program youth ministry. We should call it youth and family ministry because you don't, do youth separate from the family, you see. And so they are specialists and they're trained in that speciality of youth and family and how to take our children and encourage our children to grow and mature. That's their speciality. Me? No, I'd like to take those guys and knock their heads together sometimes. I just don't understand them, you know. That's not where I come from. Yeah, Hmm? That's why we have youth ministers that are six foot tall and 300 pounds. <laughs> and then the other thing in song, I, and I grew up singing in choir and a cappella group, Church of Christ, where my, my parents or my father was Baptist, but I still believe that there is a, a um, purpose in the instrument in he- helping you develop melody and singing with your heart. And that's why there's such a huge, to me, book called Psalms written yeah. by David. And it was that he used that. And it's in an effort because a lot of us who do sing, not professionally, but who do who learn to sing and want to sing well, we use instruments such as a piano or a guitar to get those notes and to learn that melody um, and to, and to then do it a cappella. So I don't, because I just felt like when I was growing up, it was such a, like the instrument was a sin and it wasn't even allowed to have the instrument in the church building, even for a wedding or even for a celebration that kind of took that context too far. Because, you know, then I'm like, again, we are the fellowship, are the, you know, the temple of God, not the building. So it really, and, and again, even at ACU, you know, same inquiry. Yeah. And, and I, I track along with you. Let me confess my sins and my wife's sins. It's her fault. <laughs> she has misled me in this. If the Gaither musical group is singing somewhere in the United States, Within 700 miles where I live, guess what? We're going. Okay. We are great fans of the Gaither Musical Group. And guess how they sing? With instruments. So I'm not opposed, and I'm coming back to Scripture, I do not think Scripture is saying that it is wrong to sing praises to God with an instrument. Okay. That's not where I'm coming from. 
What I'm saying is this passage of Scripture is saying in the worship assembly, this is not where you sing with an instrument. Okay, now, yeah. go back and study church history and Everett Ferguson's work and Jack Lewis's work, and they will explain to you that the early church for hundreds of years in their worship assembly did not sing with an instrument, but they sang a cappella. To emphasize the fact that what we do in worship is different from what we do elsewhere. It is special.